All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful for your grace toward us that, as the Scripture announces, you loved us in such a way that you sent your only begotten Son, your unique Son, the one-of-a-kind God-man, to come to into history where he became flesh and dwelt among us. And he went to the cross to die for us, to die in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin. Father, we thank you that redemption is free, forgiveness is free, and that eternal life is free, that we do not do anything to earn it or deserve it. Yet, Father, we know that there are many in this world who are under the bondage, the slavery to religious systems and to false philosophies, And, Father, we pray that we as believers in Jesus Christ, those who understand the word, would continue to pursue our understanding of truth, your word, so that we can be prepared uh, soldiers of Christ, prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us and to clearly explain the gospel to those who need it. And, Father, as we study your word today, help us to understand uh, some more of these dynamics. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 13. And today we continue in this chapter with Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees. We won't get through all seven slash eight vows, but we will come to understand the first uh, two or three, I hope, uh, depending on how far we get. Matthew chapter 13 is where Jesus harshly, harshly condemns the Pharisees. He totally rejects everything they stand for. He condemns their religious approach because they are responsible for leading the nation of Israel at that time to divine judgment. They are accountable for this. He condemns them because they oppose the kingdom of God, which he has come to offer. They reject him as the Messiah. They believe in the kingdom of God. They believe there will be a coming Messiah, but they do not believe that Jesus is he or that he can bring in the kingdom. And therefore, they prevent the people from either accepting him as Messiah or entering into the kingdom themselves. And the reason is that they have sold themselves into the bondage of religion. God hates religion, as I have taught the last few weeks. Religion, though, must be understood uh, properly, that religion is uh, man doing the work and God receiving 
I mean, excuse me, man doing the work and God blessing man, God validating man. Whereas Christianity is God doing all of the work and man simply accepting it by faith. Now, what we have seen in terms of our context is that in these uh, five chapters just before Jesus is arrested and then taken to the cross, we see that he has entered into Jerusalem offering himself as the king. He's publicly presented to Israel as her messianic king in chapter 21, and then he is rejected by the nation but not by all of the people. And that is covered in the section from 21.18 through 22.46. And in that section, excuse me, this this reference is wrong. It should be 21.1 to 17. That's that's a typo there. Uh, 21.1 to 17, then he is rejected by the nation the religion, as exemplified in the religious leaders. They are the ones who represent the people. The Sadducees, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, these are the ones that um, reject that reject Jesus' claims as Messiah. And now in chapter 23, we see that Jesus, in turn, because they have rejected him, he rejects the nation and announces eight woes. And the reason that there's a discrepancy there is because of a textual problem, as we'll see with the second woe that's listed as second in the King James Version, and that's covered in this particular chapter. We looked at the first part of this chapter where Jesus concludes by pointing out that the Pharisees are not motivated by humility. They're motivated by pride and arrogance. They want to set themselves forward. I concluded last time going through seven different types of Pharisees as defined by the Pharisees themselves. And they recognized that uh, six of the seven kinds were were hypocrites. They were critical. There was a lot of uh, criticism of the Pharisees, both within their ranks and from those outside of the Pharisee ranks uh, at the time that Jesus was there. The seventh category are those who love God. And it is from those God lovers, I'm sure, that you found people, Pharisees, who were responsive to the gospel message like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. But Jesus' conclusion here is that religion is grounded in arrogance and not humility. And I pointed this out a minute ago when I defined religion again as man doing the work and God blesses and validates man. Man is always after human validation and divine validation. They think they are impressed with what they do. They are impressed with their ritual. They think that this somehow honors God, but it does not because it's not on God's terms. In arrogance, man thinks that they have a good enough idea of God that God ought to be impressed with their sincerity, with their morality, with their ethics, and their desire to please him. But they reject God's revelation in the process, which says that God does all the work. That is grace. He provides everything for us. We don't spend enough time, I don't mean as a church, I mean individually, truly reflecting upon the grace of God. That should be the prime motivator in the spiritual life, is understanding uh, God's grace. We receive his work, his blessing for us by faith. And with regard to salvation, that is faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
And so we come to this chapter, chapter 23, where after the first 13 verses, uh, our 12 verses of prelude, Jesus then really lowers the boom on them. He, he is extremely harsh in his condemnation of the religious leaders of Israel. And this is something that doesn't sit well with modern contemporary man. We have to think of this a certain way, that God has a viewpoint that is expressed in Scripture. We refer to this as divine viewpoint. And divine viewpoint is how God created things and how he designed things and what he established in terms of moral and ethical and spiritual absolutes. Man comes along and rejects that, and from their own arrogance, they develop their own ideas about God and about eternity and about uh, religion. That is human viewpoint. Man also develops many different philosophies, and we live in an era today that over the past 30 or 40 years, we have developed certain standards within the culture that are not biblical standards, but they clash with biblical standards. And culture, especially American culture, has a history of developing ideas of social sins that somehow replace and supplant the ethics of Scripture. In the 19th century, if you go back to the 1820s and the 1830s, the worst sins that you could commit involved slavery. They involved um, uh, not treating women right, not giving them equal rights. Also, child labor was another great social sin. This came out of a, what gave birth to religious uh, liberalism in the early to mid-1800s. Uh, and there were other social sins, such as drinking, and that gave rise to the temperance movement. But sin is defined in these, defined in these uh, superficial uh, social sins. Now, you get into the 20th century, and that those superficial social sins change. And you get into the late 20th century and into the early 21st century, and those social sins are defined as being politically incorrect or being intolerant, uh, being too critical of somebody, saying anything that is negative. And one of the problems that uh, surveys have, have uh, uh, surfaced in the millennial generation as they go to church is they don't like hearing negatives. They don't like hearing any kind of criticism. Now, the problem with that is that Jesus is harshly critical at times. So when you are reared in a human viewpoint culture that says harsh criticism or intolerance is the major sin, then when you read Matthew 23, you say, Jesus was a sinner. Jesus is intolerant. Jesus is uh, critical of the sincere religious leaders. And so we have a problem in our culture as Bible-believing Christians trying to communicate truth to believers, untrained, untaught believers, and unbelievers who have a reversed polarity on their sense of right and wrong. 
And so we need to come to understand how to approach that so that we don't front load their perception by, by their easily, quickly dismissing us. Well, you're just critical and judgmental, so you're not worth listening to. That is how the devil blinds people's minds to the truth. And it's a spirit, part of spiritual warfare. And so we need to be much more engaged in prayer and we need to learn and develop uh, our own skills at asking questions and at thinking through uh, how people respond to things that we say and our own attitudes so that we do not become a, an impediment to people's response to the gospel. And that often happens. That pe- That's how people are. They like to use ad hominem arguments, so they'll reject a message because of the messenger. And so we need to make sure that we get ourselves out of the way and let God deal with the person and to make sure that if they are rejecting the gospel, that they're rejecting the gospel because they reject the gospel and not because of some attitude or um, some uh, other opinions that we might have that distract from the cross. This is why Paul said, uh, I came to know Christ and crucified. That's the focus of the message. It's about the gospel, our calling. Our calling as believers is to be uh, witnesses of the gospel. That is our focus. So we need to be make sure that we are well trained in that. So in a day when tolerance and avoidance of any kind of criticism is viewed as being unloving and uncaring and hostile and even sinful, we need to think through how to talk about this. That when you think about what Jesus is doing, Jesus is presenting the one and only way to God. He is giving people a life preserver in the midst of drowning. And for someone to come along and say, well, any life preserver will do when the others don't work, is allowing that person to drown. So that would be a justified way. Perhaps one way that we can engage conversation about this is to stir or direct the, conver- congr- the conversation in a direction where we talk about, well, is it ever valid to be critical? Are you ever critical? Aren't you being critical of those who are critical? Aren't you being judgmental of those who are being, who you think are being judgmental? You know, trying to get them to think about and discover where there are these internal logic flaws within their thinking. Somebody sent me a video yesterday. I won't go through the video uh, in detail, but it was interesting. It had to do with Second Amendment rights, and you had a guy and a girl, and they were dating, and and she was liberal, and he was... Uh, he had a, uh, a pistol and she discovered that he was pro Second Amendment and goes through three or four little interchanges where he is pointing out certain logical facts and her, then her head explodes and he's just covered in blood and conclu- the concluding thought is her head blew up because of logic. 
this is what is happening a lot in our culture. Logic is rejected in, in mysticism. I've gone through how we know the truth so many times with this congregation that in rationalism and empiricism, Logic is the methodology used to arrive at answers. Rationalism is the idea that reason is the way in which we can arrive at truth. Empiricism is the idea that it is through experience, the scientific method, observation, that we can arrive at truth. Both are built on logic. But we live in an era when rationalism is perceived to not offer ultimate solutions, and it doesn't, not ultimate solutions. Empiricism has been rejected as not being able to provide ultimate solutions. And so, as we've seen once before in history, and that is at the time of Christ, there is a reaction to reason and logic, and in place of it is substituted mysticism, and the means of getting to truth is not through logic and reason, but through, through irrationalism, through feelings. We have shifted, as one author titled his book, from reason to irrationalism. And that is how we have ended up where we are today. And so it's difficult to talk to people who, from their their presuppositional, their assumption base, they say logic can't get you to truth. And so if you use logic, their head's going to blow up. I think that brings us back as believers to where we have to focus on the Bible, which means we have to know the the Scripture and understand the Scripture. So we have to recognize that there are people who are coming from a cultural human viewpoint background who uh, would automatically say, well, this can't be Jesus. In fact, there are liberal scholars, liberal, very liberal Bible scholars. There was a group in the 90s called the Jesus Seminar, and they came along and decided what in the Gospels Jesus could have said, would have said, or could not have said, and would not have said. And they don't think that any of Matthew 23 could have been said by Jesus. See, they have a preconceived notion that being intolerant and judgmental is not godly. Therefore, Matthew 23 is intolerant and judgmental, so it can't be godly. Therefore, Jesus could not have said it. See, that's how human viewpoint reason operates. So we have to understand that from the Bible's perspective that God speaks truth and that there is there is one who is the embodiment of truth, and that is Jesus who made the extraordinary exclusive claim that I am the truth. And we have to think that through and what that means. And you've heard me go through this uh, argument that when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's either telling the truth or he's telling a lie. Now, we may have some people whose heads explode from that logic at this point, but that's your option. He's either lying or he's telling the truth. If he is lying, then he is either self-deceived or he's crazy. And there's no evidence from Scripture that he is self-deceived. There's no evidence that he is psychotic, that he truly believes what he is saying. So if he's not deceiving people intentionally, if he's not crazy, then he must be telling the truth. That's the standard God, Lord, liar, or lunatic argument. 
And so if he is telling the truth, then we should understand that there's if there's only one way to God, then anyone who is taking somebody in another direction is dangerous and causing people to go through eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Therefore, it is worthy to be critical and to condemn those who were leading people astray and leading them to eternal death. And that is what Jesus is doing here. Matthew twenty three thirteen, we find the first of, and for simplicity's sake, I am going to call it seven woes plus one. We'll get into that when we look at the second woe that's in the uh, King James and New King James Version. The first is, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So he immediately lets us know that he has never read uh, Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. He is not a promulgator of of the uh, positive thinking doctrine of Norman Vincent Peale or possibility thinking doctrine of uh, Robert Schuller. In my first church, which was composed of about half the people who had grown up and come out of Bible churches in the Houston area and who wanted to know teaching, and the other half was older. There was a gap between 35 and 55 because they had a split about 10 years earlier. The older people ran off all the younger ones. And so there was always this kind of undercurrent bubbling within the congregation. And I actually had one sweet little old lady. I mean, she was really sweet. Every Friday morning, she brought me one of those cakes, cake pan-sized trays of homemade sourdough biscuits to put in the refrigerator. Uh, six weeks and ten pounds later, I had to stop that. <laughs> that was that was terrible. But she was just the sweetest thing. And one day she said, and this was my first church. I'd hadn't been a pastor before and she said pastor you know we would just like you to be more like Robert Schuller." <laughs> you know that's what a lot of people think it's it's just, just positive thinking possibility thinking never never say a a harsh word but Jesus isn't that way that doesn't mean that we should necessarily emulate this by being uh, nasty and judgmental and condemnatory of people. He's only this way with people who have locked down their positive volition, uh, uh, excuse me, locked down their volition into negative, so there's no hope and no way back. Jesus knew that. So he is, not, and he's, by these condemnations, he's not condemning every Pharisee. He's only condemning the six out of the seven, basically, because the seventh seemed to be positive. In fact, we know from Acts that many among the Pharisees and the priests responded to the gospel after the resurrection. So he says to them, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now he picks on the scribes and Pharisees because they are the dominant party at this time in ter- and the most conservative Bible-based, we would say, party. Now, that doesn't mean they were truly biblical, because we've seen that they were not. 
but they were the conservatives. The, the Sadducees didn't believe in the Bible at all. They didn't believe in anything but the first five books, and they rejected the doctrine of resurrection and of the existence of angels. And the chief priests uh, were only concerned, and the Herodians were only concerned about either their religious power or their political power. So the Pharisees were the ones that would look to for religious truth, for knowledge about how to go to God, in uh, this, this late second temple period. What Jesus says to them, there are two words that are critical for understanding the framework for this condemnation. The first word is woe, and the second word is hypocrite. What exactly does Jesus mean by these words? Well, you can see them in their original language up on the screen. The first word is woe, which is pronounced oi. In the Greek, it doesn't quite look that look that way because you have uh, four vowels pulled together, but it is a translation or transliteration that has been brought over from the Hebrew, and that's the second line in the blue box. Oi is the Hebrew word you find uh, throughout the Old Testament. That's what you hear often today. It comes down from Hebrew into Yiddish, and so it's entered into various other languages. And it is an onomatopoeic word. That means it's a word that that sounds like what it is saying. And that is an exclamation that comes from out of somebody's mouth when something terrible or horrible uh, takes place. It represents a guttural outcry of anger and pain or both. Uh, it expresses grief and despair, but the way it is used in the Bible is to express God's judgment, his discipline, his harsh discipline on a people or on a group. He announces woes in the Old Testament against Israel for their idolatry and because they have rejected his word. He announces, uh, Jesus announces these woes against the Pharisees for these, uh, seven plus one reasons and there will be woes that come at the, in the middle of the, or in the second half of the tribulation period, the last three trumpet judgments, which are in the middle just before the midpoint. The last three are called woes, the three great woes. Two of them occur just before the midpoint. That last woe is the seventh trumpet that opens up to become the seven seal judgments. So the seal judgments in the second half that culminate in the campaign of Armageddon, that's the seventh, or excuse me, that's the third woe. So these are harsh judgments from God. Then they're called hypocrites from the Greek word hypocrites, which referred to actors who put a mask on their face. That's the classical meaning. So it was sometimes we talk about somebody being two-faced. And so they believe one thing and they do something else. And that would also apply to the Pharisees. But Jesus is a little more pronounced in the way he is using this because they are hypocrites because they claim to believe in the kingdom of God and in a coming Messiah, but they have rejected both and they are preventing anyone who wants the kingdom of God or the Messiah from entering also. So that is the essence of this condemnation. We will learn that this term hypocrites, which is an important term in Matthew, is a term that identifies unbelievers. It is not a term for Christians. 
It is a term for unbelievers, and we see that he's talking to them as unbelievers by what he says at the end of this section in Matthew 23, 33. So you may just scan down to the end of the woe section in Matthew 23, 33, addressing them. He again shows that that he doesn't really understand human viewpoint ways to win friends and influence people. And he addresses them, as John the Baptist did, as serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of Gehenna, literally? Okay, so he calls them serpents, brood of vipers. Now, the term brood is a English translation from um, a, a, a Greek word that means the children, okay, or the descendants of vipers. The Old Testament usually relates that word to the concept of seed. And, of course, a viper is a poisonous kind of serpent. But this imagery here takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, after Eve and then Adam have sinned, and they go off into the bushes to hide when they hear God come because they're afraid. They had uh, tried to cover up the fact that they had sinned and that everything had changed by making clothes out, out of fig leaves, which didn't quite solve the problem. And God showed up, and he doesn't jump on their case and judge them immediately. That's important to understand. What he did was he began to ask questions. He said, where are you? Now, God perfectly well knew where they were, but he wanted them to think through where they were and how they got there. He wants self-discovery here. That's important when we're talking in any conversation in evangelism. I think sometimes the period of questioning or getting people to think things through may last a couple of years in some cases. It's not going to happen in a 15-minute conversation at Starbucks. It can start there, but sometimes it takes time, especially when people are so programmed and indoctrinated by the human viewpoint culture that we have today. So he asked these questions, and that brought them to a point of realizing that they had uh, really messed up. They had uh, they had disobeyed him, and they were in a worse position than they could ever imagine. And then God really made it clear by announcing what the consequences for their sin were going to be. And he addresses each of the principles in this temptation scenario. He addresses first the serpent who was the um, who was used by Satan. Satan indwelt this serpent to tempt Eve. And so he addresses the serpent and the serpent's punishment. And in verse 15, which is called the first evangelistic statement, the first hint of how God would provide the good news, that's in Latin that's called the Proto-Evangelium, God said, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, he's talking to the snake, between you and the woman. Now that isn't talking about a fear of snakes, okay? That is talking about something that is much greater. He is talking about the seed of the woman eventually. He says, between your seed, that is those who follow you, and her seed, that is talking about the one who would come and solve the problem. 
And this idea of seed is a critical term that it is traced all through the Old Testament. That's why you have all those genealogies that you skip when you read the Bible. You get to Genesis 5 and you read all those names and you say, I don't know who those people were, so you jump to Genesis 6. Or you get to Genesis 10 and 11, you read all those names and you don't know who any of those people are, so you skip uh, skip that. Well, that's tracing the seed. That's going from Eve all the way to Noah, from Noah all the way to Abraham. Then later, uh, genealogies trace that line so that it culminates, it ends in Jesus of Nazareth. And so we can trace that seed. But, but what God is saying here is there's going to be a case of hostility and an enemy status between the descendants of Satan and her seed, which is the Messiah. So when Jesus calls them, and when John the Baptist earlier uh, called them this, the 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 seed of serpents, they are making a very profound uh, judgmental statement against the Pharisees. They are identifying them with Satan's descendants and Satan's seed. The term which would indicate they're not believers. The term hypocrites is used several places in Matthew, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6.2 and 6.5 and 6.16, as well as in 7.5. You can look those up uh, easily. But one, and in each of those, he's, a, he's referring to the Pharisees and he's treating them as unbelievers. Matthew 15, though, makes this more clear. He says in a conversation, with the Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites. So Matthew 23 isn't his first time. He calls them hypocrites, and he, then he quotes from Isaiah. He says, Well did Isaiah the prophet uh, prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth. They talk a good talk. They talk about how much they love God and how much they love his word and they can recite scripture and they live uh, externally a very religious, uh, moral life. Uh, they draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but it's all talk, like, like, a lot like politicians. It's all talk, then we elect them and they go to Washington and we wonder what happened to their promises. Uh, that's the idea. They're all talk and no a- action. In fact, in Texas, we call them all hat and no cattle. <laughs> so this is how they are. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, they worship me. That means you can worship God and it's emptiness. That's what God says. It means nothing. And that's what it was. It was just a lot of action, but no reality. Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. So it's very clear that hypocrites refers to unbelievers. Now that's going to be important when we get into the end of Matthew 24 and into chapter 25, but I'm just laying the groundwork now for what we'll come to. Then in Matthew 15:14, Jesus says, let them alone. He's talking to his disciples now about the Pharisees. He says, they are blind leaders of the blind. Now we're going to see that idea of blindness come up in Matthew chapter 23 uh, several times. He will twice call them fools and blind, not exactly, exactly endearing language. Someone who is spiritually blind doesn't see any spiritual truth. 
So that again reinforces the meaning of these words as as referring to unbelievers. They are blind leaders of the blind, and both will fall into the di- into the ditch. So the first condemnation is outlined here in Matthew thir- twenty three thirteen. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! So judgment is coming. Uh, you're unsaved. Why is judgment coming? For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow uh, those who are entering, those who have uh, what appears to be positive volition to go in. You are preventing them. So there's two things going on here. First of all, they personally reject his messianic claims and offer of the kingdom. And then second, they are leading the nation to reject those claims as well. And so, as I pointed out, that's what defines a hypocrite here. So they are preventing them. Now, a couple of things to observe here. First of all, this is the primary evil of every religious system. Every false religion and false philosophy seeks to prevent people from knowing the truth and from entering into uh, eternal life. So that is Critical. This is why the first woe is important. Second, false religions always make a person feel good. They feel good about themselves. They feel good about what they've done, either their ritual or their morality. Uh, it may stimulate their minds. There are some religions that appeal to uh, our intellectual capabilities, cerebral skills, and so they think that they are impressing God by their by their thinking. Uh, others, there are religions that will calm their fears and anxieties and philosophies that make them feel good temporarily. It relaxes them or it gives them something they can hold on to rather than being depressed and upset. Uh, religions may give them moral standards. It may improve their family life or it might improve their relationships with people. In a lot of religious systems, by going to church or whatever passes as church, they build a lot of social and business connections. And I've always been somewhat negatively impressed by people who go to first, second, or third Methopresbyterian church because of who they meet there that they can interact with in terms of business, it will give them certain standing in, and contacts and clients in their business. And if you go to church, pick a church and that has anything whatsoever to do with why you're going to that church, then, you know, it's the poison root that poisons the fruit of the tree. It is a bad motivation and it is not God-honoring. So religion makes a person feel good and think highly of himself, but it does not bring them to heaven after death. Third, like all religious leaders, they pretend to know God. They pretend to know their Bible. They may even quote the Bible a lot. Satan quoted the Bible to Jesus. He misquoted it and misapplied it at times, but uh, just because somebody goes to church regularly and quotes the Bible doesn't mean they understand it or that they are going to heaven. 
Religious leaders are energized by arrogance and self-absorption with their own ideas. They're impressed with their own intellect and their own religious inventions. This is basically what Paul says. Notice the similarities between Paul and Romans 2 and what Jesus has said. In Romans 2.17, Paul says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. See, they are relying upon the law, the Torah, as what gets them to heaven, and they are able to boast about what they have. They boast in God, they know that they know his will, and they approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. And you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. Where do we learn that blind, light, darkness imagery? Jesus uses that in Matthew 23. You're an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Paul will later talk about unbelievers as those who hold to a form of godliness, that is the form of spirituality, but deny the power thereof. That is religion. Romans 2.21, Paul says to these Jews, You therefore who, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? He's pointing out the hypocrisy, the inconsistency of their views. So the Pharisees, under fourth point, the Pharisees lived under the delusion that because they were God's chosen people, they were Israelites, and Israelites were custodians of Scripture, that they would therefore automatically receive God's approval and go to heaven. That was their idea. If you were ethnically Jewish, you were in like Flint. Okay? That was it. So, fifth point, in contrast, Jesus is saying that he alone is the Messiah, and he alone came to offer the kingdom and eternal life, and life comes only through him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, Pharisee, Sadducee, religious person, no one comes to the Father except by me. And six, this is why the greatest battle is not the battle between Republicans and Democrats. The biggest battle is not the battle between conservatives and liberals. The biggest battle is between those who hold to biblical truth and those who do not. The big battle is not against progressivism or socialism or social justice or humanism. It is against anything that will prevent people from learning the truth about how to get to heaven. Now, second woe is what I'm calling the other woe. Okay? That way we can stick. Because when I I, I wrestle with this a lot, trying to figure out how to cover this, because in the New King James Version and the King James Version, which is based on the Textus Receptus, there is an insertion of a verse, Matthew 23:14, a woe that reads, Woe to you, uh, scribes and Pharisees, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Now, we've talked about this many times, that there are textual problems in places in the Scripture. None of them affect any doctrine. This isn't a verse that's inserted that Jesus never said. It is stated very clearly in Mark 12:40, 40, 
and also in Luke 20:47. They read almost identical, so I just put Mark 12:40 on the screen. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, uh, these will receive greater condemnation. So it isn't that Jesus didn't say this. The issue is whether Jesus said it in the context of these woes in Matthew 23 or some later scribe decided, well, that's left out. I want to put it in there. Now, the majority of manuscripts that we have include this in Matthew 23. I've looked at the evidence, and I think that... um, uh, it's not totally clear in my mind, but I would default to including it. And because it is scripture and it is in the, in parallel passages in Mark 12 and Luke 20, clearly stated by Jesus, I want to still, uh, look at it and, um, and cover it. Matthew, though, in Matthew 23, has the longest account of this condemnation of the Pharisees. It's virtually ignored by Luke and Mark. They just summarize it in two verses, in Mark 12, 39 and 40, and Luke 20, 46 and 47. They say almost the same thing, and it's just a summary. They don't say anything else about what is included in Matthew 23, which, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, is Jesus' last public uh, public sermon before he goes to the cross. It's not his last instruction. That's Matthew 24 and 25, but that's private to his disciples. So it's the imagery here, again, of their failure to apply the, the, the meaning of the law. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayer. So what's con- Contrasted here is on the one hand, they are devouring widows' houses, which is a very graphic image that indicates a, a violent, painful, total destruction. Here you have an older woman who's incapable of providing for herself and incapable of working. She has a home, but it, everything that she has, all of her possessions are, are destroyed, and, leave, and she is left destitute and forgotten. And historically, we're not sure exactly what... Uh, that described, but in rabbinical literature, there are at least four different options. The first is the temple authorities manage the property of widows, and they arrange that it, their property would be dedicated to the temple in a way that would allow them to to basically foreclose on them and take over the property. That is mentioned in some second temple period literature. Uh, second, the scribes uh, took advantage of widows' hospitality and abuse that hospitality, which led them to to becoming broke, and that was a problem also in the Second Temple period. Third, the scribes took homes took home pledges of debts they knew that could not be repaid. They would say, "Okay, we'll help you out. We'll give you a loan," and then they would um, put an egregious interest on it so it couldn't be repaid, and then they would foreclose. And then a fourth possibility. Uh, as they took fees for legal advice uh, that were in contrast to the provisions of the law. That is stated in some literature. The idea is that the scribes, in contrast, gave an appearance of being obedient to the law. 
But Jesus said in Matthew 22:39, when he answered the question, what is the greatest commandment, he says the first is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, it is loving your neighbor as yourself, which is stated in Leviticus uh, 18:19, that they were to love their neighbor as self. And this violates that. They are not loving their neighbor, the widow. They are destroying their neighbor, the widow. So this shows uh, their their hypocrisy. The third woe which is the second uh, woe in uh, most translations. So we'll refer to it as the second. The one we just looked at is the other woe, the plus one. Uh, the th- second woe comes up in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Now, what we see here, again, is that they are doing one thing and uh, uh, creating a further uh, problem. They are subverting the people through their system of converting Gentiles to Judaism. Now, Judaism, for the most part, whether it's the biblical worship of the Old Testament uh, during that period or what came to be passed as Judaism, was not very interested in being proselytes. Remember Jonah? God sent him to Gentiles. He said, I don't want to go. We don't want Gentiles to be part of the Jews. So you see the attitude in the Old Testament was that they weren't real evangelistic. And under the, uh, but under the, the, this late temple period, they were almost militantly, uh, proselyting. And so there were two different kinds of proselytes. We studied this when we studied Acts. Uh, one was called a, a proselyte of the gate. And a proselyte of the gate was a Gentile who attended uh, Shabbat services. They went to temple. Uh, they worshipped the true God, but they not, had not committed themselves to a full uh, ritualistic Judaism. That would, would have been especially painful for men who would have had to undergone circumcision. So most proselytes like Cornelius that you read about in, the, in Acts were proselytes of the gate. They were not... Um, proselytes of righteousness. That was one who had become completely religiously uh, Jewish according to all ritual, including circumcision, and they were in many cases given Jewish Jewish names. But they were very much uh, aggressive in making them proselytes to their pharisaical legalism. And the result is that, that Jesus says you'd make him twice as much a son of hell I don't like that. That is bad translation. A son of hell is yourself. We've studied this again. We'll hit it one more time in this chapter when I'll go in detail. Literally, it is the son of the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom. In this map, we see that the Hinnom Valley was just to the south of the old uh, city of David and uh, the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' time. It's used uh, 11 times in 10 verses. Uh, in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we learn that this is the place where Judah sinned by committing child sacrifices and burning their sons and daughters alive in the fires of Moloch. And thus Gehenna symbolized the place of Israel's greatest idolatry and spiritual failure and disobedience to God. For those sins of idolatry, they were condemned and uh, they were punished 
in time, not eternity. See, what you'll hear from a lot of people is Gehenna was a place where they burned trash and it burned all the time. It was just a garbage dump. And so it pictures eternal lake of fire. That is dead wrong. It was always used in the Old Testament as a historical reference to God's temporal divine judgment on the nation Israel at that time. And so uh, in Jeremiah 19.6, Jeremiah predicted that as a punishment for their sins of idolatry and immolating their children in the fires of Molech, that that very same site would be used as a mass burial site for those that were slaughtered in the Babylonian destruction in 586. Not eternal judgment, temporal judgment. That's seen in Jeremiah uh, 7.32. And so the conclusion we reached when we did a detailed study earlier is that the Valley of Hinnom was not used in the Old Testament as a reference to eternal condemnation in the lake of fire, but as a place of divine discipline on the nation of Israel for their spiritual failure. That's what Jesus is condemning the Pharisees, is because you are bringing these Gentiles in to be part of your your toxic religious system, and this is going to end up bringing the people into divine judgment. It's the first statement of his foreshadowing of what's coming at the end of this message, talking about this because of pharisaical rejection of him, the nation will be judged in A.D. 70, and the temple will be destroyed, and the people will go out under the fifth cycle of discipline. That's where this whole message goes in Matthew 23:33. Serpents, the brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of the valley of Gehenna? Temporal judgment. Now, when we get to Matthew 23:33, I'll have I'll go back and redo the whole doctrine so we get there. But that that's what they're talking about here is that the Pharisees are making these converts Sons of judgment, sons of the divine judgment of Gehenna. They are making them complicit in their spiritual crimes. Religion is deadly, and it has to be condemned. It may make you feel good now, but the end result is eternal condemnation. That is why Jesus condemns the Pharisees. The grace of God does not impose a religious system. The grace of God says... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I've done it all. Jesus paid it in full. All you have to do to be saved is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study your word, to get into the uh, details here, recognizing the horrors of religion, the horrors of philosophical and religious systems, that lead people astray, that teach them that there is life where there is only death, that teaches them that they can have meaning and value in life and happiness apart from complete, total obedience to you, which isn't submission to a religious system. It's not the yoke of the commandments that the Pharisees were put on. For Jesus said, take my yoke for it is easy, it is light. It is a yoke that is based on faith in Jesus Christ alone. It is not based on works. It's not based on a religious system. It doesn't demand that we clean up our lives and change everything before we can be saved. It is simply Jesus died for you. All you need to do is trust in him and him alone, 
and you will have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would drive these truths home to us as we understand more and more fully your grace and the evils of religion. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.